My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. In this conversation, I'm speaking with Julia Antonic and Jonathan Meyer, the executive directors and artistic directors of Ketchery. Ketchery creates dance works, furthering the transformative power of live bodies, witnessing live bodies, and advocates for the essential role of art within society, of dance within the arts, and of all artists working within the dance ecosystem. Throughout our conversation, we explore the process of their creative collaboration, some of the origins of their curiosity, and their process working together to create works such as Sense, which is a week-long, moving, intensive, coming up in March, and Marginalia, a duet of two female bodies, intimate, impetuous, I encourage you to visit their website, read about their vision, see images of their offerings, um, or better yet, take the opportunity to see them in person. I'm so delighted to share this conversation. I'm Kim Rothwell, and you're listening to The Return to Embodiment. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's nice. Yeah, thank you. We're delighted to be here and talking with you. Yeah, so... um, I like to establish sort of how we were connected. Yeah, we've been uh, we've been connected with Kate for I don't even know ten years or something maybe. I'm trying to get her on the podcast, but she just keeps giving oh. me other people. She's like, no, no, really? <laughs> that's funny. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> we should have brought her along on this podcast. So, how is embodiment to each of you? I guess for me, uh, embodiment is about bringing or allowing more levels of awareness into our experience of ourselves. So I I think that, you know, typically maybe we we, um, think about consciousness as a pretty cortical brain function um, and the capacity to be aware from from the cells or from the fluids or organs or other tissues. Uh, I mean, I think that actually that's that's happening for us, all of us, all the time. But um, how much do we allow that awareness to to permeate the cortical consciousness or just give space to to be directly aware in the cells? I guess for me, that's probably yeah. my sense of, of embodiment. I was thinking that in a way embodiment is just not something it's just being alive right we are we don't have to do anything to be embodied but what we do have to actively do is fight back against systems that are trying to disembody us so i think a lot of my feelings about embodiment or practices of embodiment preoccupations with embodiment have to do with undoing the things that are trying to take us away from that. Yeah. Protect, I mean, protecting embodiment. Protecting <laughs> embodiment. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I do think that it can feel paradoxic that, um, that embodiment is happening. It is just the reality for us all the time. And yet we can, we can experience greater embodiment always all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's in a way, not a process of doing a thing that's not, happening already Mm -hmm. it's it's a way of allowing a thing that's already happening and one of the one of the things that feels still quite mysterious for me that um that i that i reflect chew on quite a bit i guess is um bonnie bainbridge cohen talks about um whom i've studied with through through body mind centering talks about the way in which like oftentimes even if we're doing somatic work what we're doing is bringing in the the mind like the cortical mind as a witness which is a lovely thing to do, and, and I think a really valuable part of the process of doing somatics or, or, or embodiment. But also that there's a way to, to not have to do that, not to have to still 
keep the, the cortical mind in the driver's seat in a way as witness, but just to, to step aside and be directly aware of the cell's self-awareness or the, the fluid self-awareness or something. Um, so I love all that, but it, it is in a way still quite mysterious to me and, and, and a thing that's um, got a lovely arena to explore. Yeah, and I think that's probably where we come in with our art making is to not just be the cortical mind talking about what's going on, but um, creating experiences that do this and access this in multiplicity um, for the body instead of honoring just one system like the um, nervous system or whatnot, um, but trying to. Um, trying to play into the, the full-bodied um, presence of a human being. We're having a little cartoon moment here with John. <laughs> New cartoon. As you know, as a parent, just like talking and then pausing. And I'm like trying to th think how I used to talk <laughs> before having a kid without childcare. Sometimes my, my children will, will request that I finish my sentences. Right. <laughs> yes, let me do that. Sorry about that. I was... <laughs> On one track. Yeah. yeah. Welcome back, Jonathan. We're just talking about. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I am really loving hearing, first of all, each of your reflections on this inquiry. Love the weaving process that you do with one another, the deepening or the fleshing out that happens as you continue to talk. So right away you were, Jonathan, you were kind of talking about the, the cortical processes versus the, the sort of body, organ, fluid, <laughs> cellular processes. Mm -hmm. This is my, my experience, the place of indulgence that can be found in the body-mind centering work, a real like, dropping away from the cortical mind, getting a break from that need to even name or track, but really truly coming to understand from a different way of knowing. So you kind of talked about how that's a process that's always happening, um, but our consciousness can kind of center it or decenter it. <laughs> and then Julia, you took it from the process of coming to access one's own embodied consciousness to more of this collective understanding of the forces that are continually pulling us into the cortical only or into the virtual or into trauma and oppression, right? It was like the systems that disembody. Right. And then you, you brought in this idea of how the art making allows for the multiplicity of layers mm -hmm. to be experienced. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love, thanks for reflecting that back to us. That was a lovely little journey yeah. that you just yeah. took me back on. You do the work for yourself and then you find a way to translate it through art making to invite others in who may not have had the training or the experience that you have. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about using the word translate from my from my inner experience. It feels more about conduit or something or um it feels more direct than that, and that the translation probably happens more in the in the uh, audience member's body. Um, I'd say that that's where that's where translation um, exists for me is allowing the people who come to the work to have that place of like what what am I feeling and what's happening here, like from my body embodiment um, epicenter. It feels more of like a opening up of doors to yeah the art creation. Yeah. I was just thinking about um, that, that sense of opening as well. In that same sense, we were talking earlier about like the, the way in which we're all embodied, you know, to, to be alive, we're, we're embodied. And so oftentimes I think a lot of what we're thinking about in, in presenting work and, and how we construct the work is about opening up 
certain aspects of experience to audience members through through the work not like introducing a new thing necessarily but just like creating a context in which a person can have um, greater access to their an experience or a reality that's that's just already there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because there's because there's an, a thing being perceived that you know our, in our day-to-day life is there's kind of that space for maybe you can come into to a show and suddenly have a different kind of space or a different kind of framing or context or something that um that that does open doors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh we're just getting some feedback from um a dress rehearsal from a show we just opened <clears throat> and um the person was talking about a way in which like we you know we come to anything really but let's say we come to a, to a show a performance um so laden with the kinds of the expectations that that we bear with us from our um you know the normative pressures around us our personality our culture and everything that it can be difficult to um to to step outside of them and and see something differently um so his comment was that part of part of the way we work was that is to to really clearly aim focus in a in a in a specific enough way that the, the expectations are um are easily cast aside and, that, and so that there is that openness but then on the other hand to also at the same time have enough uh abstraction abstraction in the work that then having cast aside maybe assumptions or expectations there's a there's a really wide range of experience or interpretation or translation that can happen um so that so that it can really be widely very differently perceived by different people and that's certainly a a, a goal for us is that we're not trying to tell people what to think or feel or experience or what to do with that i'd like to kind of almost go back in time a little bit and find out about some of the origins of your understanding. If you could sort of each trace for me a little bit your origins in this work as as movers, as artists. I remember when we were talking before, um, a significant part of it origin story for me, I think, is living in this world in a female identified body and and finding um myself always at a place of discord with you know what what is being expected of me or taken from me um and what I feel like my body is or deserves or um needs. That in conjunction with just having a probably a personality that I would describe as being very sensitive um, to, to stimulus and input. So being to find, um, find a clear, like, what are my boundaries? How to, how to make permeable boundaries that were um, protective, but also didn't shut me off from things. Um, I can continue to let, let certain things in and um, be clear about what is not, um, invited feels like something that was just a necessary survival uh, skill that was that began. I mean, I don't even remember. I don't even remember it. I rem- I know how things have developed and changed, or um, kind of sharpened, or softened, or matured, or um, fluctuated in different times and different circumstances. I just feel like this kind of um, state has just been with me as long as conscious memories have, have been there. It feels like before even like dance, I mean, dance was always there too in my family. I was brought up in a dance studio, but before, before I can like remember that, I remember this feeling of like trying to figure out that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, um, Hearing you talk about that and, and feeling like, in a in a way, I had a very similar and opposite experience of of being in a male body and and similar in the sense of feeling always. I mean, from my earliest memories, a lot of discomfort with what was expected of me, 
as a male and in terms of how I'm meant to interact with people or, or be in my body and, and quite opposite in the sense of, of how much privilege I had in some ways. And, and I think it's, it's easy to oversimplify these kinds of statements and, and, and miss some, some nuance of, of contrary and coexisting truths. But in some ways, I think that I've, I've had an easier time of finding permeable membrane um, and, and being able to both have the membrane, but I've maybe had in some ways more ability to, to find permeable membrane, but that that's at least partly, I think, an aspect of privilege right. um, that, that I've been more able to, to, to find that and, and not get kind of, not feel stuck in that polarization between like totally. overly rigid boundary or not enough boundary at all. Right. Cause there's this, there's this expectation of female bodies to be emotionally malleable and right. physically malleable yeah. too. Yeah. And if you don't, then you could, re- you can be the recipient of harm. Right. But if you do, you can be the <laughs> yeah, recipient yeah. of harm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So and it's I like, or are you choosing to like stand up for yourself? Like, it's hard to, to decipher as a younger person, like where to exist within that. When, when do I have the privilege finally to be able to stand up and mm-hmm. have more, you know, language and nuance in the, yeah. the permeabilities. Yeah. And I think the part of what I did react against from, from even at a very young age is the expectation of rigidity or, or hardness. Mm. Um, I could move away from that and go into softening without, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I didn't, receive uh harassment for that i I think i that was part of my struggle even as a child but it was a harassment that wasn't as brutal i think as as women or girls typically receive so it's it's yeah that's i think that's part of what the privilege is Mm -hmm. so um can i see if i'm sort of tracking with you this might be my projection so if it's off just tell me (laughs) Mm -hmm. that um some of this process of uh embodiment comes with a quality of some vulnerability there's like softening and for some of us really inhabiting that makes us more vulnerable more projected upon um potentially bullied So it's interesting to me just as witness right now that both of you share this, uh, my word once again, like this, this tenderness towards what is happening and arising. I would say once again, to speak to the systems, a lot of our systems don't have time for that. A lot of our systems are built to keep us in the cortical space because it's more efficient and it's more homogenized. It's more. Yeah. I'm thinking about um, something as you're saying this, that feels like the other side to this softness of embodiment. Um, and I, I don't know quite how to articulate this. I've experienced it again from this like perspective of like my, you know, experience in a female body. Um, and I think that like there's, there's aspects of, that I haven't experienced because of my, the the privileges I have as a white body. But I think that there's this other part of embodiment or that non-cortical embodiment that have been forced upon people that is like not so soft and, and dreamy or vulnerable in a, in a sense of like um, the potential positivity of vulnerability. There's like this, like you must be a body. I'll speak for myself. You as a woman have to be the, all the other body parts that we don't want to deal with. And for me going through birth, this really like brought it to a head of like being like you as a birthing person, as a lactating person um, have to do that over there. And we don't want to see this. The people that can stay in cortical place um, are privileged in the place of not having to deal with that kind of bodiness for people um who have been in a racially oppressed position it's it's gone further into that um in many ways that i can't speak to but it feels like what are the places of being embodied in these non-cortical places that are actually the a darker history of of these systems of oppression 
Yeah, I don't know if I have the language for that. It, it, it's reminding me, though, I think we were talking before about um, J.M. Bernstein's book. Uh, he, he talks about sovereignty in the sense of like a, a way in which uh, his his primary examples are, are torturers or, or rapists are trying to achieve a, so, a sense of sovereignty that in, in the sense that they're answerable to nobody by um, taking the the way in which all of us as humans are, are vulnerable to each other and and um, foisting that vulnerability it's an essential quality of, of humanness foisting it onto the victim and thereby um, having a sense of sovereignty um, and and I really feel like that that's very much what happens with with our um, with with many kinds of bigotry uh, including racism but I'm thinking specifically here about um, body hatred and, and disembodiment and the whole Cartesian split that that you know goes back much older than, than Descartes uh, in, in Western history, at least. Um, but this way in which we, culturally, we have come to associate the mind with control and power and the body with voluntariness and, um, and lack of power, the way that, it, you know, the body is susceptible to disease or control or, or pain, all, all the things. And simultaneously, the way in which the mind has been associated with maleness and the body with femaleness, as you're talking about, by turning any any victim group into like overly associated with body, um, whether it's enslaved people or, or women or, or um, whatever, there's a way in which um, the, the attempt is to for the control group to to achieve a sense of sovereignty, or right. for the, the the oppressed group to to be like overly identified with with body and and associating that with uh, the involuntariness or the and responsible for all the tasks of the involuntary body, right? I, yeah, there's something about the the forced labor of non-cortical bodiness, which is right. It's not embodiment, but it is being forced to be identified with something that is. I mean, it's it's, it's a, lot, a lot more of the body than the, just this one place. <laughs> right. And, you know, part of what you were saying earlier, Kim, is like um, the, that, that, I mean, a lot of what happens there in this kinds of context is trauma, which is, a, is, is about disembodiment in part. So, so what was the word that we have for that way of like overly bodyifying somebody in yeah. a way that's disembodied but i think yeah. that there is a word missing here because there 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 is the trauma aspect of that but for people who have been forced to be in this 90 percent of the body place you know mm -hmm. as a culture or as a demographic or as a gender or whatever it seems to be there is a different kind of embodiment that i do think is powerful and not acknowledged mm -hmm. not revered in the way you know i feel like as a lived experience and a lived thing that's passed down um, that is embodiment, even though it is, there is an aspect of it being a dark force labor kind of initiation of it. There ends up being a different, maybe there's a different, there's a different word that needs to, that maybe it's out there. Mm -hmm. Do you know it? Have you heard it? <laughs> Have you heard anything about this? Oh, we are uh concept creating right now. Um, I don't know it. Mm -hmm. um i'm just trying to relate in this moment from my from my experience and my perspective i grew up in a female body and when you when you talked about the mothering and the lactation um as a female body i think that it's true like birth there is no way to move through that process without dropping in profoundly. <laughs> um, it, there was no way for me. I know that there are some people for whom that process is, is taken from them. But for me, it was like I had to really uh, leave the cortical in order to move beings out of my body. Right. Yeah. Not in the cortical. Yeah. I, I was in a very, very deep, private, primal place um of great wisdom um ancient wisdom <laughs> right and there was a feeling of also being connected to a lot of people who had who've happened who have done this across the ages and my mind also went back even further to menstruation 
and how bleeding is a process of returning me to my body (laughs) and to a sense of vulnerability, to a sense of, oh, there are things that I have to do. I can't just show up. (laughs) I have to care for this place that is me. I cannot live cortically. And, and society doesn't necessarily support that. You see it in just public bathrooms. It's like there's toilet paper, but there's not free tampons or pads. You have to buy, you have to buy your taking care of this or, you know, have to hide it, you know, in a way. Right. And the, and the calendars mm-hmm. that are automatically on the phone don't have trackers for this stuff mm-hmm. because they were created by people for whom that wasn't important, mm-hmm. right? So the yeah. systems, like that's just a really example. There was kind of a silencing, um, a discomfort of the control group that is projected onto <laughs> the menstruators. Yeah, I guess that this is what gets me excited about like where to be standing in an artistic process of like what are the... Since we don't have the language for some of these things, sometimes we just like make the art about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've been chewing on this this a little bit. Also, I feel like there's a way in which sometimes we tend to maybe like try and limit a thing too much by defining it. And and I think that you know something like embodiment is 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 maybe you know maybe we don't want to limit that any more than we want to limit like art. Like, what is art? Well, it's 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 infinite different things right and and we tend to associate embodiment with this like kind of like somatic practice it's about a practice it's about a real kind of positive like investigation of a thing but but maybe embodiment is is also um you know maybe there's a language to come up with for talking about different kinds of embodiment there's like pressured embodiment or a kind of sense of natural embodiment or this kind of like practice of embodiment or the sort of traumatic embodiment that like because it's also very much the way Torture is often described. It's like really forcing somebody to be wholly in the experience of being a body in an extreme way, the point that nothing else exists. There's very different kinds of, of, you know, if we want to just stay with that term embodiment. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. So, yeah, just like anything in in the world, it's like you can have the spectrum of very um, positive to very harmful, hurtful. Right. types of embodiment right. i guess in right the, uh yeah i mean if you look at a word like love which means so many different things and we do have some language there to talk about like codependency it's not to say that codependency is not love it's to say that it's an unhealthy manifestation of it that can exist that within. includes some really beautiful aspects too uh, potentially right yeah. it feels like there's a lot of that happening within this conversation of like panning out and then bringing the focus back okay. in. Um, yeah, Nancy Derek Smith used to call that telescoping awareness. <laughs> I think we love to do that. Yeah, yeah. like out in kind of mm-hmm. jellyfish kind of thinking about things, right? Jellyfish. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, it's just like kind of like that, like what, oh, what Kim undulation. just did uh-huh. physically. And that's what it like. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pulsation. Yeah, the, pulsation. Yeah. Yeah, in the uh-huh. yeah. embodiment, the developmental even just the fact that I'm asking this question of lots of different people. Some people don't like that there isn't a definition. <laughs> oh. Uh. Can I get to the definition? Like, when are you going to be like, and so this is what embodiment is? say the right, the answer that they said is right. <laughs> so I really appreciate this acknowledgement of the fact that it's, expansive and evolving and lived and individual yes yeah Yeah. and and normatively contoured you know it's collective and and, and social and and communal and co-opted by the (laughs) somatic yoga like whatever community you know Mm -hmm. there's (laughs) modify it make money you're yeah. right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. All yeah. The, all the things. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So I'm really curious about how you met mm-hmm. <laughs> and started this beautiful 
creative life dance of art and family making. Yeah. Good. Should I do this one? <laughs> yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, we met. We met in the dance ecosystem here in Chicago through multiple occasions. And I'd say that um, we ran into each other the most at Lynx Hall. So we were there as dance makers and residents or there for workshops um, or documenting things or performing things. And um, we just kept on running into each other in that uh, part of the dance ecosystem here um, and then through through other people's work as well that we probably like instantly encountered this this kind of like volleying back and forth we felt very opposite each other in a lot of ways at the beginning there was like this moment where I was in residence at the Chicago um, Cultural Center um, and Jonathan was just, you know, hanging out with me for a second and we just started dancing and started making up movement together. And it felt like just like really easy to just like kind of create, um, like to, to devise movement, like, mm -hmm. and exciting and engaged. It was like supernatural, kind of like passing back and forth. And right. like without almost without any sense of effort, there's just like phrase kind of blossomed. And we just happened into a thing where we had, we were, we've had that ease from the beginning, but we also worked through a lot of conflict. Mm -hmm. We've, we've gotten really good at or we've gotten better <laughs> in working through that conflict, but it feels like we've occupied both of those spaces in both like our, um, you know, physical practices and family practices and, um, discussion based practices and organizational yeah. practices. Yeah. Working together in the studio from the very beginning, gave us uh, my experience of it was that it, it just gave us a, a certain kind of foundation that helped us in our relationship too because we were because we had such a conscious practice in the studio that from the very beginning was was very much about being um, collaborative and, and equal and um, and vulnerable and um, challenging each other and ourselves and, and naming things and trying different things out and um, we had very specific practices that were about like identifying where Julia was strong as a mover or or habituated as a mover and, and where I was strong or weak as a mover and habituated and kind of sharing those with each other. What what took us a little bit longer to find maybe is how to be as conscious in practices in our relationship. And I think that like you said, communication was it was a challenging one, just like language and how we how we tended to communicate was really hard for us at the beginning, ways that I was that I tended towards defensiveness and Julia tended to push or something that like really <laughs> triggered each yeah. other. Like the more she'd push at a thing, the more defensive I'd get, the more defensive I'd get, the more she'd tend to push. And it just, it, it took us some time. It also just took us a, a good therapist <laughs> to help us figure out how to like negotiate our language. It's not just language, but it, was, it expressed itself in language. And I think that it was this very emotional component too for me about like defensiveness and insecurity and all the, the stuff behind that but, um uh -huh. we learned to uh to work with it in language consciously and then um and then like you said yeah we, we started taking those kinds of practices into how, how do we do administration and how do we right um do all the other things in our lives yeah it sounds like there's a um has always been sort of a mutual creative respect for one another albeit mm -hmm. difference in terms of style, approach, skill. Yeah. And that was the the image that you gave, the story of dancing together and having it be so easy to create and collaborate um, is, sounds just so beautiful. <laughs> That's a language that both of you are super skilled in. And then the like talking through details administratively makes sense to me. That's like, oh, that's a little hard for us. It doesn't yeah. come naturally. Yeah. Jonathan began Ketri, the dance company, in 2002 by himself. Um, so we met in 2007. So he had a whole administrative 501c3-ness that he had for himself and he did in his way. And I was an independent choreographer that I had for myself and I did in my kind of way. And so like what, what kind of like 
autonomy did we need for each other to be able to still be running our art in our own kind of way? And there was just questions of like me getting, um, uh, what is the word? Like subsumed. Subsumed into your thing because he's nine years older than me and he's a male. So in the dance world, the microaggressions about, you know, what, what I've made versus what is his. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it it happened even, even, even though we took some time and were careful about how we brought Julia into Ketchery and and turned it from, from being my company into our company and co-running it. uh, There was a long period of time that, um, that there was just an assumption that it was still my company. And I I mean, it it still shows up, but I think that, uh, but it largely has become clear to everybody that Ketchery is Julia's and my project together that we co-run it right so there's like just like additional logistics of having to make sure that our communication with our the ecosystem around um allowed for for understanding of that too you know which actually was like easy easy talks well we had i mean we always had to do administration together even when we had like my company julia's independent career and our separate collaborative projects together there was always admin but like structurally, we kept all those three separate, and then how we did admin changed once right. we just folded all three of those things together. Right. I mean, it was like like when we moved in together, kind of thing. Right. It was like yeah. we, we both had separate apartments for a long time, and then what was the inspiration behind the original creation of the company, Jonathan? Um, you know, I had been a bit in and out of the dance world for um, for some time, and I got pulled back in more through the Taos Dance Festival and um, just got really excited at the time and um, wanted to continue making work. It was a, a, an available structure to do that, to be like, okay, if I, if I want to make work, how do I how do I support it? How do I make, make, make money and fundraise and what I call it? And, you know, all the, all the things kind of just sort of just fell into place. And at the time it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a big goal. Like, oh, I want to create a dance company and run a dance company. It was just like a means to an end. It was a means to an end, yeah. yeah. And then it just kept rolling. I was out there in, in Taos with Ketri for four and a half years or so. And um, towards the end, realized I just really needed a different, honestly, just a different size. I needed a metropolis to be able to do what I was wanting to do with dance. So um, looked at a lot of different places and chose Chicago to move to. Um, Larger ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. It just needs a, a large ecosystem, at least in at least in the U.S. The way you know arts and, and dance function in the U.S. And then the, in the particular the kind of dance that we're doing, it's just so. It's just like this. Yeah, I think you described it as like the subset of the subset niche. Sub sub niche. <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. finding people that are interested, in, both like you know, art, artists and audience. Mm-hmm. Can you describe a little bit about your influences and how, Julia, when you came on, how did your artistry expand or shift or enrich the work? Hmm. Influences. I'm curious also about yours, Jonathan, like either of you could talk about um, primary influences. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my grandma had a dance studio as as I was growing up, so I kind of, it was just, a required um activity of just being in the family um so it like ranged from being like something that was that felt like going to dance class to to being more involved in putting price stickers on the leotards and the you know sweeping the floor so just kind of being involved in like the the chores and the um uh manifestations of of dance studio life I don't have a memory of like not being influenced by that a lot of people who are creators in my family culture that has been lauded in the past of you know painting and creating and playing music and whatnot um but then I had a you know a history that you know went into western dance styles um ballet and modern dance and um then also um indonesian um dance and um postmodern dance 
contact improvisation. And I'd say that the contact improvisation probably is where we intersected so easily mm-hmm. and had like that kind of ease of um, communication while with duetting um, right away because of our shared history of, of that form. Um, and you know, what I've brought, I have the tendency to be a little bit more, um, we think something E <laughs> try and like pull up and pull out and be like, what's not working here. Let's change this. So probably I had more of like a, a leaning into more experimental processes of like deconstructing systems that were kind of embedded within our, um, pipeline of, of dance making, um, in the, in the kind of culture that I grew up in. Yeah. There's a way in which I've always been more the like head down, kind of plot along, plow through, make things happen. <laughs> yeah. I um, can stay in process for forever. Like there was a certain point where I'm like, I probably just wouldn't make performances anymore. I just like, if I could build just... performances that never got seen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan's the kind of person that would like have a performance all the time. I'd say that you're very um, prolific in your in your production of something. You're like have no problem with just like laying down a bunch of stuff and showing it. You know, I would be I kind of would stay in the kind of like churning of ideas and and experimentation. The thing that I feel very clearly, I've I've learned more than or a way in which I've developed more as an artist than, than anything else as far as Julia's influence on me is critical examination of a thing. That's it's like a piece in my dance training. Um, and honestly, in my, my, just my education in general, I think is a piece that I really missed. It just was not ever strong for me uh, in, in how I was educated and, and also was, it was particularly difficult piece for me in terms of my own constellation of insecurities. It was you, it was Julia that really like helped me begin to like use critique as an essential tool to bettering the work and bettering my processes. So a lot of like being really hyper generative and, and endlessly making potentially interesting rough drafts and throwing those on the stage and never like getting past that sort of rough drafty stage to um to something that feels for me just much more mature nuanced crafted yeah i mean i think that's like you're describing a certain way which i'm brave and i feel like in a way the place where you're brave is like conversely a place where i was really insecure of like just putting things out there Mm. like it can't go out until it's perfect Mm. or i feel a sense of Perfection, you know, my tackling perfectionism has been like a big maturation, I think, for myself. You're just very brave about putting putting the things out there and being like, well, this is where we're at right now. And here we go. Here, here's the thing. And mm-hmm. and when when critique or when, you know, something came your way that was not exactly what you wanted, you it didn't stop you ever. I had this fear of like, oh, if I put it out there and it's not ready. Mm-hmm um that then i will be crushed i guess there's like a resilience in your the prolific kind of presentation of things that i've learned from a way in a way Mm. too of being like okay well this is as good as it gets right now here's where we put it out there and also you know be critical of it and like keeping both of the best sides of our things like my my dark side of of staying in the studio is the fear of being crushed right your dark side of you know, putting things out there and is like not being able to think critically or accept critical, you know. And this is exactly where I feel like the audience comes in so strongly right. that like, and we felt this particularly strongly over the last three years because of the pandemic and the the inability until very recently to actually do live work in front of an audience. It's It's such an indispensable part of the process of art making for the kind of art that we do at least to to put it even if it is very rough drafty i think we're both leery of the idea or the of perfection or, or imperfection or, or at least the way that term is used but even if it is very imperfect in, in in whatever sense uh to 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 see how it's received and to to to, to experience the audience's experience of the work is just it's so integral to 
how we even understand what the work is and, mm. and therefore what what does it need right it's interesting to me that you're um you're talking about this critique piece because you actually when um toward the beginning of the conversation reflected and brought in the feedback from someone who saw your most recent performance and mm. um, mm-hmm. yeah it was like the identity of a piece of work is not made until it's been reflected back on it from an audience member or interacted with it from an audience member can't feel done yeah <laughs> until i can't be sensed or understood i mean i think that this is also like a, a place where I've, i have felt weak and there's a way in which when i'm looking at my work in in process i just i don't really see what's there i think my sense of what i'm wanting or what it could be is sometimes stronger than my capacity to to experience what it is or to perceive what it is mm. and um you've helped me with that but also audiences really helps me with that like just what their experience is i'm like oh actually <laughs> this right. is what's happening right um right and not I, this other thing can you walk me through a little bit of your creative process like so <laughs> different because of the pandemic yeah. I mean, it also, it's different for each project, I'd say. That's, that's a, pl- a thing that I think we really share is, is to be very project-based and to have projects that, that are wildly different from one to the next. I think that, that usually what happens is that something starts as like a little like spark of an idea or something, right? And it's like how to like take that into the next step is, is usually different, right? So like Orders from the Horse was like a... Uh, the the seed of what made the the retreat our body of work called the retreat it was just like an idea of of an improvisation practice so we just practiced a certain way of improvising together for a very long time yeah i don't quite remember how this started actually but we got to talking about like what if as like when we're doing movement improvisation there's this kind of moment to moment like anything's possible in the next moment and in in the given moment there's there's choices being made, right? And could there be a way in which those choice, the awareness that creates the sense of possibility and also the choices that are being made moment to moment, could they be happening subcortically in the, in the low brain or in the body? And <clears throat> what would that look like? So we began developing a practice that, you know, followed a lot of roots. We like tried a certain kind of thing about like, okay, let's just work on repetitions or, um, we had certain things that we tried and some stayed with the practice and some kind of fell by the wayside because they didn't really work for us. And we had different points where we were like writing down, like, here's the 10 aspects of the practice and what the practice is. And then eventually it kind of matured more to where we could just kind of click into a certain kind of mode, what supports the mode. You know, musically, we need a certain kind of mm-hmm. thing or, we, or you know, we were also not working without music, but once we brought in music, we realized certain things that we, needed to ask for from our collaborator it was kind of a challenge for us it was like how to can we improvise not from a state of choreographing in the moment um but from a state of you know, more commonly called possession but we were investigating like what is what is our cultural somatic um understanding of what that would be right yeah there's a way in which like the the notion of possession is like that that somebody or something else is controlling the body right so our part of how we were talking about early on was like well what if what if the somebody or something else is not the cortical mind but the body itself Mm -hmm. or some other aspect of the body Mm -hmm. making those choices and then that just kind of rolled into like more ideas about beneficial boredom and um spaciousness of the wilderness or um, trying to, as a viewer, um, uh, witness dancing, dance choreography, dance performance from a place that's not from this kind of like sitting in a seat, eyes in a dark theater, looking at a thing and like digesting it through this little frame of light, but like from a place of like falling asleep and knowing that there's dancing still happening and then waking up and it's happening or, you know, participating in a certain kind of movement practice that, um, kind of clues you into this place or a drawing practice that you this kind of like more long form durational, durational kind of experience of, of, of dance. And um, what does that do for, so for how dance performance is absorbed? 
there's the data about how long people on average spend at the rim of the Grand Canyon. And it's something like five minutes or seven minutes or like a ridiculously short amount of time for like taking a journey like that. If you go into the wilderness expecting uh, a drama, you know, you're, you're waiting for something to happen, like bears to emerge or something. It's, 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 it's frustrating. It's boring. But if you go into it with a sense of like shifting your focus into anything could be interesting and then the most minute thing or, or, um, or slow thing can be quite engaging. Could we bring that into right. to performance? Right. Cause, cause like Western concert dance and the circuit that it, it, it occupies in, in capitalism is, is that five minutes of, of, uh, the Grand Canyon kind of viewership, right? right? Of being like, this is stunning. So like how to open into that. I guess this is kind of showing a little bit of the process, like started with like this, like a question about improvisation, committing to a certain practice within within that regularly. And then all these other questions start kind of coming up and kind of interweaving with it. Um, like what is, what is corpuscular? What is this hypnagogic and hypnopompic kind of like state of being where you're half asleep and half, asleep, half awake? What's happening when you like wake right. up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom? Like, what is that kind of movement where you're like, not quite, you know, like, right. and just kind you're of like, not to wake yourself up too much, right, right. but you have to be awake enough to navigate a thing. Right. So like, can we dance from that space? Then things would just like, kind of like evolve and kind of weave into each other that way um, until finally it becomes a manifested, presented Thing. Yeah. With this project, certainly where things open up more and more and more, and there becomes this like overabundance of possibilities. Right. There was a point which we were calling it a project team because we had this whole thing it's about installations. <laughs> At some point, then the opposite process is happening where you're where you're pruning and shaping and getting rid of things that no longer belong. It's either um, it doesn't belong or there's no budget for or it. Or it's another project <laughs> oh, yeah. that like, becomes yeah. a back burner. Yeah. Like, oh, we'll tackle that other thing uh-huh. that belongs elsewhere later. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think we're, the two projects that we're doing now, like actually had their like spark thought back in like 2015, mm-hmm. um, when we were doing another, other bodies of work. So they're kind of like facets of, of, of these other bodies of works that, that weren't able to happen with that. Cause it wasn't, we don't have the budget in the, um, you know, people to be able to manifest like multiple things all right. at the same time. Right. Um, so there's a lot of this kind of like back and forth of like associations and, tossing ideas out and trying things on and seeing. Uh, and then collaborative kind of thing with each other. It extends to the collaboration with other artists. We're, we're bringing other artists into the studio and dancing with them or making music with them or making costumes or um, objects or whatnot. Mm-hmm. The way that those kind of like play out is very different per project. But. Yeah. That's an example of a, of a project that began in a way as an idea Um that, that manifested its way into movement. And we've also worked the opposite way with, with marginalia. Mm. We started really with, um, and, and consciously wanting to do this, like just starting with movement and, and crafting bits and phrases of movement and beginning to kind of piece them together in a sort of collage kind of way. Yeah, just working strictly with movement. Yeah, like- and avoiding any sense of like, well, what does this mean? What is it about? What are the themes? Until it matured enough as a kind of... Um, body of choreography to where we could start to say well well what is it suggesting that it maybe it means what is it saying that it's about and uh-huh. and then eventually finally it, it it i think had a real clear sense of thematically or conceptually what what was it about what oh, was, yeah what was it we but could, it took a while to get there. yeah we could also trace back we like auditioned amanda and kara and chose them for a reason like it was very clear to us so we needed people that had a chemistry with each other and it was you know choosing them specifically like matchmaking two people that were like this is chem- like chemistry wise this is gonna work yeah so we did have an idea of what we were doing but even that i think also came from the movement because yeah, we were yeah, looking yeah. at specific improv. we were actually looking at movement chunks that we had on video from our orders from the horse improv that processes together in. and we were looking through hours and hours of movement material but specifically choosing a particular kind of movement that was about particular duetting moments that were about close contact. Yeah. And ranged like the spectrum of like really like soft to really like rough. Right. And that kind of relationship. This very question about whether something comes from an idea or from movement is, is really somatic in the sense that like we can talk about whether something's mind or body, but in the end, it's never one or the other. Right. It's just the, the, the both things are, are 
integral each other. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it sounds like in your process, you pose limits and practices in order to kind of return focus over and over and over. And in doing so, something begins to emerge as a pattern or a phenomena or curiosity. And then that moves the process just a little bit further. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yep. It's so amazing that this is what you do. <laughs> you guys create. Yeah. You're like you just nerded out for like a long time on it. Sorry. So it's really good. I was like, there were words that came out that I was like, don't know what that is. Myself, write that down. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of the things that I heard you say that I really, really loved, Julia, was beneficial boredom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Where does that come from? Oh, you know, I read an article a long time ago about it. Where was that from? I could find that for you and and, um, send you that source so that I'm quoting the right person on it. What happened too for me was that like, this is when I quit social media too and, and found like, uh, my break from that, this like kind of place of like, we're not letting ourselves be bored enough, right? There's not the, the influx of, of technology always being in hand. Um, the places where we used to be like, oh, I'm just sitting here at a bus stop do, do, to do. And then what happens with your brain and your body and your interaction with the world around you in those places is like not happening enough anymore so like how to like actually claim space for boredom and make boredom happen as a necessary like you have to sleep at night you have to be bored sometimes i think that there's a growing body of, of researchers studying this to, to uh, in multiple facets like how how vitally important it is for for child development to have that space and to not constantly have the brain occupied how vitally important it is for for adults to to, to have that space for further emotional and psychological health, how important it is for creative practice, how it's a beneficial aspect of meditation. I think that there's so many ways right. in which it shows up and, and how much yeah, social media and technology undermines it. There's that whole phenomenon of the 15 minutes, like that the brain becomes attuned to like having to re refocus on a, on a thing every 15 minutes is one of the things, right, that social media has, has done to us. I feel like it's even less than that now. This is like weaving back into that original question. I feel like this is like the interest in the, the systems that we're we're having to like protect ourselves from in order to find a certain kind of embodiment. So yeah. beneficial boredom is like not something that like just lands in your lap. In my life, we had to create, we, we started doing like you know, technology free Saturdays where we turn off our phones and our computers on Friday nights and don't turn them back on until Sundays in order to like get to that place where we're like, so how's it going? <laughs> you know, like finding the, like the awkward pauses in conversations or in your day where you're not just like kind of going from dopamine rush to dopamine rush and getting to those little gaps, I guess is what it is. Mm. Yeah. We made a commitment to going on an artistic residency at least once a year, yeah. um, quite a while back. And that that's a place I think in our specifically more in our career that, that we've tried to carve that out for ourselves of like, not just to be in the studio for 12 hours a day, but to go on the hikes and um, maybe not, sometimes we're talking about the work or thinking about it. Sometimes we're just kind of like spacing out and like checking out the trees or the sky or the whatever. And that the space of not doing is as important for ideas kind of falling in right. as the space of thinking about the ideas. Right. Um, the, the ideas falling in. The other phrase that that I noticed in what you were saying was the spaciousness of the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, it feels like when we enter into something with a perception or a frame of being able to contain it, we miss out on the opportunity, the spaciousness to be found in possibility mm. that is so much beyond us mm -hmm. so that was kind of how 
when I heard that phrase, I was thinking about the vastness of the wild and tiniest in our world that are vast in their potential interest and the enormous things that hold multiple worlds and how quickly our naming process contains these wonders into something uh into something like fast food <laughs> the viewership model here's your burger <laughs> yeah it's like it's fast food yeah as opposed to challenging people with the boredom and with the spaciousness mm-hmm. yeah we're so um typically so contained in in a in a purely human world like the our, our day-to-day lives and social media and all of these things that are that are our our sense of of our world is almost solely human for some people yeah uh-huh. yeah i'm saying like for typically you. yeah um, even and even adult uh-huh. right not even just purely human the children not the adult world yeah uh-huh. like yeah. they have to conform to that yeah and i think that even our experience of sort of the non-human is again oftentimes very humanized it's pet or it's or it's cattle or it's things that are um domesticated yeah they're contained within a human world ran across the term species loneliness that finally had a a a language for a thing that, that i feel very strongly i experience this deep loneliness about being however however much i'm surrounded by people or humanness that i experience in that context when it when when i miss the non-human, the the natural world, the being not just at the park, but in in actual wilderness. Or it's like uncrafted by a human. Yeah, uncrafted by a human, and we get to to dip into the the experience, radically different experience, you know, of of a raven experiences being a raven, or what a river experiences being a river, or or, or, or even the the space between what a river is and what the bank is right that it, even just like in our languaging right contain things into oh well, that's the river and actually it's like changing right mm-hmm. all the time right mm-hmm. yeah you left for a moment to attend to something very important and <laughs> um the the language of the spaciousness of the wilderness and how I think our appetite for that, my appetite for that is much greater. And I really love this species loneliness and this um, longing to find ourselves amongst what is beyond, what is um, non-human, non-controlled human world, but also where we ultimately belong as well. It's like our embodiment within all of the ecosystems as opposed to supremacy over them. Yeah. Yeah. It's also a macro reflection of the the micro and the way that, you know, there's more human, there's more cells in our body that are not our DNA that are not us in a way, although they are us too. Right. But um, we, we need the non-human to be a functioning organism. <laughs> right. Get your probiotics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Someone told me once there are more um, bacteria in your mouth now than there are people living or have ever lived in the past. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. just on that for a moment. It just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. I feel like this has been such a rich, deep, winding, carving. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, it just gives me a real desire to see your work, participate in your work, find a way to be um, celebrating it. Um, more opportunities for people to, to, to engage it, be formed by it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Great talking with you. Yeah. It's so fun to talk with like-minded, interested, interesting yeah. people. All nerding out mm-hmm. together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Julia and Jonathan for sitting with me and talking, exploring unnamed concepts and still evolving creations. I'm so moved by the way in which process itself is a beloved act in their work. To enter into creative process is a courtship of coming to understand what is possible, starting to imagine something different, something new. Thank you to Josie Rothwell for the opening credits and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing credits. Thank you to my patrons for supporting this podcast. Thank you to the Embodied Education Institute of Chicago. And thank you to my listener for joining me in the return to embodiment.